This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Finding Your Bliss with host Judy Liebrach, heard every Saturday at 1 p.m. on Zoomer Radio. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Finding Your Bliss, the show that helps you find and follow your bliss. I'm Judy Liebrach, and today we're talking about something very close to my heart as a life coach, and that's how important it is to seize the day, do it now. And one of my favorite quotes is, if not now, when? I'm so aware as a life coach how important it is to just go for it and not wait until the perfect conditions arrive, like, as the author we're about to meet says, don't wait until your kids are grown up to start that business, become a yoga teacher, write that book, paint that painting, learn how to sing or pick up that musical instrument. Author Matthew Dix has written a fabulous book all about this called Someday is Today. 22 Simple Actionable Ways to Propel Your Creative Life. And this book really does empower readers to make manageable changes so they can achieve the things they'd love to make happen without it being all complicated and without having to turn your lives upside down. It's pretty simple stuff. He makes it so simple and offers great strategies and inspiring anecdotes from his own life to make it possible. And he's here today to tell us all about the book and how you can make tangible differences in your life by learning what tools you need to turn your inspiration into accomplishment. Also, later on in the program, we have singer and guitarist Ben Kettner singing us out of the show. But first, let me tell you a little bit more about Matthew Dix. Matthew Dix is also the author of nine other books, a best-selling novelist, nationally recognized storyteller, and an award-winning elementary school teacher. He teaches storytelling and communications at universities, workplaces, and community organizations. He's won multiple Moth Grand Slam story competitions and together with his wife created the organization Speak Up which is what I'm doing right now because we've been having sound issues to help others share their stories. They also co-host the Speak Up Storytelling podcast. He lives in Connecticut with his family. Matthew, welcome to Finding Your Bliss. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Of course. Congrats on this wonderful book. I love that you've divided it into four sections, and I'll tell you the name of the book, everyone, again. It's got this wonderful bright yellow cover, and it's called Someday is Today. We're going to hear more about that title in a moment, but just linger on that. Someday is today, not next week, not next month, not next year, today. And I love that you've divided this, Matthew, into four sections, time, taking the leap, support, and living the life. I also love that you've included action plans for each chapter that really make it possible for you to bite into it and get it done. It's so practical. And I just want to start with a story that I loved in the book, and that's the story of how you turned that high school English mark from a B- minus into an A. It felt like you were fighting for your life. Can you tell us about that day? Yeah, sure. You know, I guess in a way I was, but I didn't know it at the time. You know, I was a high school senior whose parents had said, when you graduate, you're on your own. And no one had said the word college to me for whatever reason. I was growing up very poor, and I think everyone just assumed I wasn't going to be able to do that kind of a thing, even though I was you know, doing well in school. And so I spent most of my senior year worried about where I would live and what I would eat when my friends were planning you know, their safety schools and SATs and things that I never had an opportunity to do. And so... I was in class one day with Mr. Campo Piano, English, and he had introduced us to satire. And I was thrilled by it because 
it was an opportunity to be funny and sarcastic, which were two things that I normally got me into trouble in school. And finally, I had permission to do. <laughs> and so I had written what I thought was truly the greatest piece of writing in all of American letters. It's a piece that I still have today. It is in the filing cabinet just to the right of me. And when I handed it in, I expected accolades. And instead, I got that B minus. And um, I was so upset by it. I was so disturbed because I just thought this man doesn't know great writing when he sees it. And so, you know, I charged to the front of the room and challenged him and said, you know, you're wrong. And he said, you're wrong. And we, we went at it a little bit. And he said, fine, read it to the class. He said, I think it's too obvious. Therefore, it's not satire. But if they disagree... I'll make you B minus into an A minus. But if they disagree with you and they agree with me, your B minus becomes a C minus, which is great. (laughs) It was the first elementary school teaching lesson I ever received in my life, which is raise the stakes on kids. And so I started reading, thinking I was going to be the winner. And two sentences in, I heard a girl laugh, a girl who I'd had a crush on for all of my life. (laughs) And that alone would have done it for me. But by the time I was done reading, the entire class was laughing And when Mr. Campo said, raise your hand, if you think what Matt has written is satire, every hand went up, including Mr. Campos. (laughs) He said, on the page, it reads flat, but when you bring it to the world and you speak it aloud, you bring so much to it. And so he turned my B minus into an A minus. I still have it to this day. But the crazy thing that happened that day, well, first I made a girl laugh and I still write to this day to sort of like make my wife laugh and convince her she's made a good choice. <laughs> uh, I made a teacher look foolish. You know, I told him he was wrong and he admitted he was wrong, which doesn't happen that often. We like to think it does, but it doesn't. <laughs> but most importantly, I felt like I had changed my future. Actually, I felt for the first time that I had a future, that I can do something. I can put words on a page And that can change something or change the minds of people about who I am and what I do. And that was so profound for a kid who didn't think he had a future. And so the next Monday morning, I came in and opened my first business. I started writing term papers for my classmates. $50 for an untyped term paper, $100 for a typed term paper. And with the money I earned, I bought my first car, a 1976 Chevy Malibu. (laughs) And so, you know, it really was a moment that changed my life forever because it gave me something, a direction. It gave me a direction to move in and the belief that maybe tomorrow could be better. And I think it also gave you something which is a huge theme in your book, and that's hope. Why is hope everything? Well, I, you know, I think that we need hope to believe that the small steps we have to take to make progress will result in something meaningful. And there was a time in my life when I was, you know, really lost. You know, after high school, I ended up with some messy years. I was homeless for a period in my life. I was arrested and tried for a crime I did not commit. You know, I was in jail. And and there were moments in those days when I nearly lost hope. And I remember that feeling of not believing tomorrow will ever be better than today. Mm -hmm. And I remember how devastating that is. And I just think it's probably the worst thing that can happen to a person. So we have to find belief that little actions will result in better tomorrows. Can you take us back? I know you were a manager at McDonald's and you worked there for many years and you worked at many different jobs. Like you're a very creative, industrious kind of person. But what happened that day when you were working at a McDonald's and you had a gun pointed towards your head while you lay on the floor, which I think you described as a very greasy floor at McDonald's? (laughs) Yeah. Well, I was managing a restaurant and it was after closing and my crew members were sort of cleaning up when three armed men broke through the windows with guns. And, 
there was a section of the safe that I could not open, which contained mm-hmm. money. And there was a plaque on it that said, manager does not have key. Uh, but these men didn't believe me. They thought that I was going to open it if they, um, if they tortured me badly enough. So they beat me. And then when that didn't work, they put me on the ground and they put a gun to my head and they said they're going to count back from three and then they were going to kill me. And these were men who the police had already visited me a week before and warned me about. And they had already killed someone at a Taco Bell. So I knew these were people who were not oh, joking Lord. around. And so, you know, as that man started to count back from three, I really believed with all my heart that I was at the end of my life. And the astounding thing about that moment for me was I wasn't sad or frightened or even angry. The only thing I felt was regret. Regret over being a 22-year-old kid who had yet to even begun to chase his dreams, and now it was all going to end on this greasy tile floor. And so, you know, obviously I survived. There was no bullet in the gun. He pulled the trigger several times, and it resulted in years of PTSD, the story that I just told you I could not have told you 10 years ago. But, you know, in a bizarre and terrible way, it was a bit of a gift, too, because it gave me a view of what it is like to be at the end of your life and feel like you haven't done enough. You know, I just heard a story in one of these interviews. Someone told me David Cassidy, when he passed away, the musician, his last words to his daughter were so much wasted time. So Mm -hmm. David Cassidy, a man who did so many things and became a world-renowned musician, at the end of his life, he was lamenting the time that he wasted. And and I understand that completely, and I never want to feel that way. And I don't want other people to feel that way. But I think that is the way many, many people sort of end their lives. And I just think it's a tragedy. And I want I want people to avoid it at all costs. So I think you've already answered my next question, which is tell us about how someday is today evolved and what inspired you to write it. And it's obviously all of this, but what ultimately made you go, okay, that's it. I'm sitting down at my computer and I'm doing this. And I know you've got a real thing around time and we're going to get to that in a minute, but just what made you just go enough is enough. I'm writing this book. Well, it was always the question I got asked the most. You know, I stand in front of people a lot as an author and a storyteller and performer. When we get to that Q&A section, people always ask me, how do you do all the things that you do? A teacher and a writer and a performer. And I run a couple companies. I, I have a full life, not to mention two children, two cats, a golf game, a wife, you know, all of these wonderful things. And I always felt like if you gave me 18 hours, I'd take you through the whole process. But nobody wants 18 hours from me, except maybe my cat. And so I'd <laughs> What's offer... What's your cat's or, name? Wait a second. What's the cat that's accompanying This is Toby. I have Toby with me now, and I have a Pluto who's somewhere else in the house. So Hi, Toby and Pluto. <laughs> You're on <laughs> They're willing Radio. to spend time with me. My wife and kids, too, but 18 hours is a lot. So, you know, what I would normally do is I'd offer two or three strategies, as an answer to that question. And I always feel like I'm letting people down. Like that's not going to help them at all unless they get the whole shebang. And so the book is the answer to that question. It was when someone says, how do you manage to do all the things you do? I'm going to say there's a book and you can go read it and it will help you, you know, find a way to be as productive as I am in whatever arena you want to be productive in. That's so cool. And you even describe that in the book that someday, that word someday might be your least favorite word in the English dictionary. And I so get this as a life coach, because someday is just, if you say someday, you're right, it it becomes Jovember, right? The month that doesn't exist. 
it's a trap, really. It's like permission for procrastination. Mm-hmm. And also, it's a false promise because it's the assumption that there will be a someday. You know, we are not promised a tomorrow. I love people who say, I have a five-year plan. Are you really so filled with hubris to think that five years from now you're even going to be here? Like, you, a bus will run you down tomorrow. And if you wait God five forbid, years yeah. to accomplish some goal, yep. I just think that's crazy. So... I just say you've got to start today, even if what you're starting with today is a small step. You know, as long as you're walking towards that point on the horizon that you have, that's that's what's important. What is the 100 year old plan and how can it help us live without fear of regret? Well, it sort of was born on that greasy tile floor that night. It was the idea that I'm a fairly unreliable person, the one I am today in terms of how I should spend my time. Like if you ask me now, what do you want to do in the next two hours? I would say I'll eat a cheeseburger and play golf. And, you know, that sounds lovely, but that is not going to lead to the life that I sort of am dreaming of having. It's not going to achieve the goals. There's nothing wrong with cheeseburgers and golf. I played golf yesterday. I ate a cheeseburger today. It just should not be all the time in the way I might want it. And so the 100-year-old plan is the idea that if you have time, and we all do, to spend, how do we want to spend it? Rather than asking ourselves in the moment, look ahead. I like to look to this 100-year-old version of myself, the one sort of at the end of his life. And I say to him, how should I spend the next three hours? He never says, scroll through social media. He never says, you should watch Netflix. He never says, play another video game, right? He never says any of these things. Instead, he says, your son's in the backyard and he's playing by himself. You're going to miss him someday. Go do that now, right? He's going to say, pet the cat because cats only live like 15 to 18 years and you love your cat ridiculously. You're going to not be able to pet that cat someday or or write the chapter that you're supposed to be writing right now. Those things. Mm -hmm. Okay, so it's very seductive, though, to go on social media. It's very seductive to sit and get lost in a Netflix series that you love and sometimes even to rewatch it as I've done Shit's Creek numerous times. How do we break that intoxicating grip that a lot of people have, especially millennials, but I'm not a millennial and I have to admit I'm pretty addicted myself. How do we break that grip and get to what we need to get to? Well, I think one of the problems is people don't know what they need to get to. You know, I think the tragedy of so many people's lives is that They live like water running down a mountain, following the path of least resistance, sort of really not determining a fate of their own, but instead allowing people and the universe and outside pressures and norms to dictate where they go. If you have an idea for what you want your future to look like, and it's a real tangible, you know, you see it in your mind's eye thought of what you want your future to be, that point on a horizon... I think that's going to help you a lot. When I talk to people and I say, you know, you're doing this now, what's your next step? So often they don't have a next step. Or if I say, what did you want to do as a kid? Like, what was that creative passion that you had? And did you let it go because you didn't want to do it anymore? Or did you let it go because it was hard? or because it seemed unreasonable or irrational. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that we end up sitting in front of Netflix because we can't think of something better to do. Mm -hmm. And what we have to do is be thinking about what we really want to do in our lives. Do not follow that path of least resistance. I think it's better to make a bad decision than no decision at all. And I think a lot of people are making no decisions about the course of their life. They're just allowing it to fall out in front of them. 
So I'm a life coach and this is exactly the work that I do, which is why I find what you do so compelling because I help people find their bliss, find their purpose, passion, dharma, enlightenment, their goal, their why, all of that stuff. And it isn't always that easy, but you have to ask the questions and you have to be willing to stay with it and to stay present and to go for it. And that can be scary for some people. I want to ask you, just because you've written so many books, 11 books, you've published nine over the last 12 years, what is the most important piece of advice you have to offer aspiring writers? It's not something people love to hear because people want sort of success in big gulps and magic pills. But quite honestly, it's simply a commitment to the chair. It is the desire to keep your butt in one place for a long period of time and continue to do that thing that you need to do. And also understanding that preciousness about writing is a disaster. You know, I meet people who say, I can only write between nine and two. I need a two hour block in order to really make progress. I need a latte. And I remind them that there were men in trenches during World War One wearing gas masks with artillery exploding over their heads writing in notebooks, hoping that if they survive this battle, this notebook might become something that they could publish someday. That really happened. Mm -hmm. And so when I meet someone who says, I can't write because it's not the right time of day for me, or I'm not a night owl, I just think, Mm -hmm. you don't really want to write. You want to have written. You -hmm. want the joy of having a book, but the work that goes into it really is compiling sentences, which means you need to keep your butt in a chair or in a standing desk, but you need to essentially do the work of assembling sentences in a sensible order. Absolutely. I'm also thinking about Shakespeare. Shakespeare didn't have a latte, right? And I'm also thinking... (laughs) Yes, he had the plague. (laughs) (laughs) He had the plague. What is task efficiency? Because I think that's a key part of all this. And what are some examples of how you achieve this in your own life? So task efficiency is sort of the acknowledgement that there are some things we have to do in our lives that are miserable. They're not things we want to do, but they're things we need to do to sustain life, you know. So when we can take those tasks that we have and we can either find the shortest possible means of doing them or offload them to other people, you know, uh, delegate those responsibilities to others, Mm -hmm. that is an enormous way to save time. So it's as simple as when you're looking at a new job, factoring in the commute to that job. You know, I live five minutes from my school where I teach every day, and that is not by accident. That is a purposeful choice that I am going to live within 15 minutes of my workplace. And so I just had a friend who took a job an hour and a half away from his home. And we did the math really quickly. The extra three hours he's going to spend on the road every day away from his wife and children and how much that money is going to you know, impact his life versus the three hours he just lost with his wife and kids. And suddenly he's starting to regret that decision. So decisions like that are really important, I think. So what if you know someone asking for a friend who's a workaholic and isn't making time for golf or friends or life or family time, wants to, like desperately wants to, but is working seven days a week and is so wrapped up in their work that they don't even understand this concept of task efficiency, let alone balance, let alone what you mentioned before, playing golf and having a cheeseburger. That's not even possible. Like, what do you say to that person? There are quite a few of them out there. 
Well, so often what I'd like to do with that person or what I tell them to do if I can't sort of help them myself is they've got to take a good, long, hard look at their day very specifically. Because quite often we're doing things we don't need to do, things that we have sort of added to our schedule or added to our routines that nobody cares about and nobody needs us to do. A company that I work with recently instituted no meeting Fridays. They had decided no more meetings on Fridays. And what they thought were going to happen was those meetings on Fridays would shift to other days. Those meetings just disappeared and nobody cared. And then they decided no meeting Fridays and no meetings after 2 p.m. And they thought all the 2 p.m. meetings would shift to the mornings. And those meetings just disappeared and nothing bad happened to the company as a result, which is just to say people at one point added meetings onto calendars and decided they were important because they were on the calendar. And so people were just spinning wheels, which is what happens to people all the time. So if you have a workaholic who's working seven days a week, well, they either have to have a vision of I'm working seven days a week to build this company so I can, you know, sell it and walk away and spend the rest of my life in bliss or I've got to fix something because the 100-year-old version of that person is not thinking you should spend seven days a week at your job as a workaholic. The 100-year-old version of that person is saying, you're a lunatic. What are you doing? You're ruining our life with this process that you've like, you know, subsumed yourself to. So they've got to look hard at their life and figure out what they can do faster, what they don't need to do, and what they can hire someone or delegate someone to do for them. Nobody needs to work seven days a week like that unless they truly hate their family and hate themselves. The friend says thank you. And uh, <laughs> I also want to talk to you about your section on walking. So the only thing I'm going to disagree with you, because I love everything in your book, Matthew. I really do. And I think you're a great, great person. Um, you say walk fast. And I believe that whether you stroll, because I'm a big health advocate, whether you stroll or you walk moderately or fast or jog, it doesn't matter as long as you're walking. I'm a big believer in walking for releasing endorphins. But what's the penchant for walking fast? Well, I will say if I'm walking for exercise in the way you've described, I'm a huge fan of strolling. My wife and I stroll to the stream all the time. We stand at the stream. We throw rocks in the stream. We stroll back. That's all good. (laughs) I think walking fast is important when we're engaged in those things we don't need to be doing or the things we don't want to be doing. So if you see me grocery shopping, I am walking as quickly as I can across that parking lot because the parking lot is the last place in the world I want to spend any time. I don't mind strolling down my street to the river with my wife. That's a lovely way to spend time. But not walking across a parking lot, not walking down the cereal aisle. I don't want to spend time in the cereal aisle. But when I'm in the grocery store... I sometimes think people enjoy the grocery store because they stare and they walk and they meander. They don't even have sort of an organized path. I watch a person go up one aisle and then a little while later they've, they're back in the same aisle. And I think, do you want to be here? Because you should not want to be here. Also, I will tell you, the science of brain chemistry will tell you that when you walk quickly, it sends a message to your brain that something good is coming. And when we walk slowly, it's a message to our brain that we are tired and lethargic, like lower those chemicals that are going to make us feel good. So walking fast will actually make you a happier person. Although I will say if I'm walking fast with my wife, she'll kill me and I will not be a happy person. So if you're walking to get somewhere, stroll all you want. I don't walk quickly on the golf course. I, I walk with my friends and we have a conversation and I think about my shot. But if you're not in a place you want to be, you should want to get out of there as quickly as possible. That's so cool. You talk about how important sleep is. So can we speak a little bit 
about sleep and how sleeping correctly can propel you to a happier and more creative life. And I just want to add, because a lot of people have difficulty with this. A lot of people cannot sleep well. So what are your tips? Well, first of all, some people can't sleep well. So I I don't want to imply that what I'm going to say will fix everybody's sleep. But Mm -hmm. oftentimes when I'm trying to help people become more efficient, one of the quickest ways is to look at sleep because you can save a lot of time if you spend less time in bed. I'm a big believer in sleep. So I'm not saying you should not sleep the required number of hours. But what people think of as sleep and what they're actually doing are often two different things. So I was just speaking to a client earlier this week. I said, how many hours of sleep do you need every night? She said, eight hours of sleep. I said, describe that routine to me. Mm -hmm. And what we all ultimately realized or determined was that she spends 30 minutes reading in bed, which is a disastrous thing to do if you can't fall asleep. Right. Right. So the only thing you should ever be doing in bed is sleeping because you're training your brain and your body that when I lie down on this place, the only thing I do is sleeping. But she would count that 30 minutes as part of sleeping, which Mm -hmm. was definitely not sleep. And then she used the dreaded snooze alarm, which is the worst thing ever made for a human being. She would (laughs) snooze twice And then she would sort of lounge in bed for another 20 minutes. So what we drilled down to was you're only sleeping about six and a half hours a night. And then you're spending another hour and a half in bed, but not actually sleeping. What if we took the hour and a half that you're in bed, but not sleeping, and we moved it into something more productive to help you reach your goals and your dreams? And that's what I help people do. That is not to say that six and a half hours of sleep is the right amount for everyone, but apparently for her it is. And it can be for you if you become efficient with sleep. So going to bed at about the same time every night, waking up at about the same time every morning so that you don't even need an alarm. Most days I wake up without an alarm around 4.30 in the morning, admittedly earlier than most, but I've trained my body to wake up at 4.30. And so when you wake up like that, you're so refreshed. Most people wake up startled. They're in a beautiful bit of sleep and then suddenly some awful sound penetrates their brain (laughs) and they wake up bleary-eyed and startled because they wake up in the middle of a sleep cycle rather than allowing their body to release the chemicals to end the sleep cycle. So going to sleep and waking up at the same time is critical. Get yourself a white noise machine if you don't have one. You're not even trying without that. Because every time you wake up in the middle of the night, oftentimes it's because a police siren, a creak in your house, your cat meowed, all of these things wake us up. They break our sleep cycles and force us back into sleep cycles. A white noise machine will cover up a lot of those noises that will wake you up in the middle of the night. There's a lot of things you can do, but you have to treat it sacredly. And most people do not. Can you tell us about the chapter briefly called The Eagle and the Mouse? Yes. So creative people have a struggle because they are mostly mice, which makes sense. The mouse lives in the grass and pays attention to the details, which if you're a painter, if you're a writer, if you're a sculptor, if you're building a house, you're building a business, all the details matter. And that makes a lot of sense. And that is sort of the essence of the creative person. The problem with creative people is they often don't get the big picture, which is the eagle, right? On the Native American spirit wheel, the, the mouse is in the grass paying attention to the details and the eagle flies above and sees the big picture. And so what creative people have to make sure they do is take both the spirit of the eagle, but also the spirit of the mouse. Pay attention to the details, but make sure that the details you're paying attention to are actually going to help you and move you ahead. You know, my favorite example is as a teacher, I watch my fellow teachers spend hours constructing these beautiful bulletin boards Mm -hmm. in their classrooms. And the only person who actually cares about their bulletin board is them. The kids look at them for five minutes and then never see them again. They become part of the wallpaper. And yet, for some reason, teachers have internalized that a properly set bulletin board 
indicates that I am a good teacher, when none of that is actually true. And so we have to recognize when paying attention to the details is going to get us to a goal that we're pursuing versus paying attention to details is just weird, self-fulfilling nonsense, which is so often the case. Speaking of nonsense, I love the chapter when you say, write your own damn Gatsby, and you talk about an author who retyped the great Gatsby, just feel what it was like to write a great novel. And you say, this was not a very smart way to spend your time. Can you tell us more about your thoughts on this? We're going to hear all about what Matthew thinks about that in just a few moments. We're going to go on a short commercial break. We'll be right back after this short message. Finding Your Bliss is brought to you by Create, Canada's leading fertility centre for over 25 years. Create is here for anyone struggling with infertility or in need of assisted reproductive technology to have children. Create is about cutting-edge science from highly skilled doctors. In unprecedented times like these, Create is about ensuring the safety of all patients and staff. Create has made important changes to protect you by ensuring social distancing, wearing masks, as well as screening before entering. So what about the bundle of joy that you've been hoping would come into your family? Create Fertility Center is here for you. Visit createivf.com to keep up with the latest changes and learn about Create Fertility Center's comprehensive care for every fertility journey. Keep safe and healthy during these challenging days, remembering that life is about moments that we create together. We are back, and this is AM740. You're listening to Finding Your Bliss, and I'm here with Matthew Dix, the author of the book, Someday is Today. Matthew, in your book, you talk about someone who retyped the entire novel, The Great Gatsby, just to feel what it was like to write a great novel. What are your thoughts on this? Was this a good idea or a bad idea? I can't even begin to imagine the idea that I'm going to type a great book so I understand what it feels like to write a great book. Mm -hmm. That sounds apocryphal and ridiculous and a terrible waste of time. I just feel like we have so little time, you know, and every minute counts. And so you should not be relentlessly working. We don't want to be workaholics, but we should be relentlessly pursuing good things in our life at all times and copying someone else's work to be able to say you did it. None of that really matters. I love that you say how important it is to ask yourself hard questions, because I believe in that so much Like asking powerful questions is what I do with people. But what do you mean when you say that you have to ask yourself authentically those hard questions? Yeah, I think one of the tragedies of people's lives is they spend all of their time focused on friends, family, neighbors, clients, customers, parents, all of these people. And so often people spend very little time thinking of themselves. And I actually think this is more common for women than anyone else. Uh, I meet a lot of women in my workshops who, when I say to them, I want you to start actually thinking about yourself a little bit. I want to give you permission to stop thinking about everyone else and think about yourself. And oftentimes it brings them to tears. But I really believe that we have to carve out time where we only consider our needs. I think the people who are leading lives of least resistance, you know, the water down the mountain, the problem is they don't actually think about themselves and what they want in life. They're so worried about making sure everyone else is okay and happy that they've sort of forgotten that they deserve to be happy too. Mm-hmm. They've forgotten that they're supposed to have a path too. They're, they're helping their husband on the path. They're helping their kids on the path. They're helping their parents on the path and their, their neighbors. But they have a path too and they haven't even bothered to look at it in a very long time. Mm -hmm. So we have to sit down and say, why am I here? How did I get here? Where do I actually want to go? 
what do I need to do in order to get where I want to go? And just stop thinking always about other people and give yourself permission to be a little self-centered a little bit every day. You also say to say yes to everything before you even think about it. Even if you don't know if you can do it, just say yes. Yeah. I know it's very popular to sort of to give people the advice to say no these days, to sort of, you know, be protective of your time and your energy. I just think that's the worst idea ever. I think that we're given so few opportunities in this world to begin with. An opportunity to say yes really means a door has been presented to us. We can open the door and go through it, or we can keep the door closed. The thing about a yes is it can always become a no if necessary. You can open that door to an opportunity that seems ridiculous, step through it and give it a try for an hour, a day, a week, a year, decide that it's not for you, and then just close the door and move on. But if we don't open the door... We don't know what's on the other side. And to think that we know what's best for us is enormous hubris. We have no idea. Some of the best things that have ever happened to me in my life, the things that have yielded the most rewards have been when I said yes to something I absolutely didn't want to do, did not think was a good idea, and never thought I could be successful doing it. And yet the opportunity was presented and I said yes. The yes can become the no, but once you say no and you say no to that door, it's often never going to be opened again and that is a tragedy. So say yes to everything and and make it a no when necessary, but give it a chance. You have a lot of animal imagery, animal metaphors in the book. Uh, So I'm just wondering if you can tell us more about the song Code Monkey, because one of the lyrics in that song is Code Monkey, just waiting for now, Code Monkey, say someday, somehow. What does that mean for you? That's funny. I didn't realize there was all that imagery, but you're right. There's a lot of animals in my book. The song Code Monkey by Jonathan Colton, I love the song. It's about a, a guy who's coding in a business and sort of, looking at the receptionist, the lady at reception and and wishing that she could be his, that they could be together. And there's a line in that song that says, someday, somehow. And I always think every time I hear that song, it breaks my heart because I think you're not getting anywhere, buddy. Because anyone who's just sitting at his desk thinking someday, somehow, that means he thinks there's a tomorrow. He's given himself the chance to procrastinate. And then he said somehow, which means he's not even developing a plan. He's waiting for the universe to intervene in some way, somewhere down the road to make his life better. And while that does occasionally happen in someone's life, that is a rare thing that should not be counted upon. You must have a plan and you must begin today. Begin today. What does it mean to be a chicken and not a pig? (laughs) So there's a proverb that says sort of like, The pig starting a restaurant is going to be much better than the chicken because the pig is all in, right? The pig has to kill itself to provide the bacon for the food, whereas a chicken lays an egg but is still around the next day, right? So so they say be a pig because that means you're going to be all in on something. You're not going in halfway, and I think that's nonsense too. I think we should be chickens because assuming that you're going to do one thing and that one thing is going to be the thing, that it's going to be the, the one thing that will bring you happiness is insanity. I believe in having multiple irons in the fire, multiple pans on the stove. I think that we should lay a lot of eggs. I think we should take a lot of shots at things. I think we should have a lot of projects going on. I think we should have multiple dreams to pursue. I think we increase our chances at success and happiness when we open up avenues to as many possibilities as we can find, rather than committing to one thing. And when that one thing fails, that's sort of it for us. I don't want people pursuing just one thing for the rest of their lives. I want people to have an expansive life where they can find joy in many ways. 
couple of favorite moments in your book. I, I love that you've been writing a blog for years and that you have something called the idea file. Like That's so juicy. Can you tell us just briefly what that idea file looks like? Yeah. So I've been writing a blog, I think, for almost 20 years now without missing a day, which people are like, how is that even possible? Wow. But what happens is, you know, an idea file is just the thought that, well, today, actually, today I went for a golf lesson this morning at an indoor golfing place and I needed to use the restroom before I started. So I, I went to the restroom for the first time and in the restroom, I saw that there was a toilet and then oddly there was a chair with a side table facing the toilet. And I thought, who's sitting in the chair with the side table and why are they staring at the person on the toilet? I took a picture wow, of it. Wow. There'll be a day when I find something amusing to say about this, it goes into my idea file, <laughs> right? Nice. And then this morning, my son comes downstairs and he says, how did you do in the storytelling competition last night, Dad? And I said, I didn't win. And I thought I was going to win. I had a great story. And he came over to me and he gave me the biggest hug. And he said to me, Dad, losing's okay because I love you. Oh. I wrote that sentence down. It's going to go in my idea file. Someday I'll either reaccount that moment just as a simple blog post saying, look how sweet my son is. But more likely, I'm probably going to use it as the beginning of a post on the idea that failure is okay. And it's especially okay if you've got someone in your life who says, I love you after you fail. I think that's Aww. probably what I'm going to say. Wow. So love any that. thought, any image, any words I see, I read an internet site and I have a, a, an emotional or a visceral or a intellectual reaction to what I read. All of those things end up in my idea file. Some of them take literally a decade to rise to the surface for me to actually do something with. And sometimes I see an idea and five minutes later, I'm writing about it. Does this go into an accordion file or is this electronically put on your computer? It's electronic. Yeah. So it's uh, it starts on my phone in a program called Notion. And then eventually it moves into the computer and into the blogging software and all of that. It's in multiple places. I love your chapter called You Choose the Finish Line. Like that is fabulous. You choose the finish line. Can you elaborate on that? Yes. So when people sort of have a dream, I think what happens is they have an image of what the fulfillment of that dream will traditionally be. I meet authors who say, I'm never going to celebrate until my book makes the bestseller list. And I just think you're probably never going to celebrate because that's a rare thing to happen. Yes. You know, I have a friend who just finished writing her book. She hasn't found an agent or a publisher, but she wrote a novel. And I said, you have to have a party now with a banner that says, I wrote a book and you didn't. Like, that's a beautiful finish line to end up. And if that's all she ends up with, she's already better than most of the people in the world who say they're going to write a book. And then they never write a book, right? So true. So we have to acknowledge our progress along the way. We have to identify points along the way where we're going to celebrate ourselves. We have to have more celebration than I think most people do. We have to honor our efforts whenever possible. And we get to pick. We get to pick where we think, you know, success will be, not sort of what other people dictate, but what we will feel good about when we achieve that moment. I also love that you talk about that we all need support. How valuable is a life coach, therapist, priest, rabbi, spiritual leader in helping you get things done? Well, I think one of the things that people require is feedback. And I think the more immediate that feedback can be, the better. And that feedback can be, I wrote something, please tell me how I did. But a lot of times I think it can be, I had a difficult conversation with my employee or my friend or my coworker. And I'm not sure if the things that I said were the right things to have said. And so you can take that and you can bring it to your wife, as I might, 
And my wife is a pretty honest person, but oftentimes our loved ones are a little kinder to us than we need. So having sort of an objective person or an objective team of people in your life who you can turn to and say, was that the right choice? Did I approach that correctly? Mm -hmm. I want to get here. Do you think that this is the correct next Mm -hmm. step? Mm -hmm. I think that when you can find those people, and especially when you can find a variety of people with a variety of experiences, that's the best way to do it. You don't, as a writer, you don't want writers reading your work exclusively. You know, I want people who read books and people who don't like books, (laughs) you know, and people who like different kinds of books. Those are the people who are, have reading my first drafts. You need a bunch of people helping you along the way. I also love the way you write. You write so evocatively. What does it mean to feed yourself a compliment sandwich? Well, as a teacher, I can tell you that the unfortunate science of the world is that we need six positive statements to counteract one negative statement, which made sense when we were hunters and gatherers. You know, when when a bush with berries might kill us, we needed to remember which one was the one that was going to kill us. The negative was really important in those days. Today, the world is filled with Doritos and doors. It's a safer place than it ever was. But we're still stuck with these brains that remember the negative more than the positive. And so in order to get closer to that six to one ratio, what I say is if someone emails you or texts you or sends you a tweet and it's kindness, that's a compliment in there. What I do is I preserve them. I take those compliments and I create a file of compliments. It's a digital file. I want the compliments that I receive to sort of have double the power. And so on a day when I'm not feeling so good, when I'm not feeling as enthusiastic as I want, I'll go to that compliment file. I'll sort of randomly scroll and I'll find something kind that someone said to me nine years ago. And I will have completely forgotten it, but now it's back with me. And I'll be reminded that nine years ago, someone thought I was kind of great on that day. And so maybe I can be great again. We have to find ways to take the things that people say to us that are kind and and beautiful, preserve them, and then maybe use them again, because we're not getting enough of it. I promise you, you deserve more kindness than you're receiving. So to find ways to maximize it will really help. I love that you're saying this because such a huge part of my coaching with people is listen to the compliments. But the way you take it a step further, write them down, preserve them is so brilliant because often in those compliments, you get an idea of what other people think of you. They see you as organized. They see you as funny and it gives you clues and it helps you in your own journey and your own purpose and calling and, and why and Dharma and all the rest. And it's a huge clue. And it's so brilliant that you said, write them down. Like, don't just, we often like listen to them we let them fly off our back like we don't enjoy them and linger there for a moment so what a great way for us to achieve that i just had to ask you I have so many questions you guys have to read this book because it's chock full of so much that honestly i have like another 20 questions for you and i know we're nearing to the end of our time what is the most important thing you hope readers will take away from your book i guess the thing i really want people to believe in is the idea of incrementalism that We can make small changes in our days and we can repeat those small changes and ultimately they result in enormous gains over time. I just think we live in a world where everyone wants a big gulp and a magic pill and they want the change to happen tomorrow. And when you start to believe that if I can do something that will save two minutes every single day, it doesn't take much math to realize two minutes over the course of time is an enormous amount of time and suddenly you can accomplish something that you could not accomplish before. And so we have to believe that life is small steps accumulated over time rather than enormous strides. Occasionally you get to make an enormous stride, but most of the time you have to believe that little changes in your day are going to truly make a difference in your life. 
One of the questions I didn't ask you was, and I just want to tell our listeners to really get this wonderful book by Matthew Dix, Someday is Today, to talk about that, all of the things you can accomplish in 10 minutes. And I was going to actually read it out, but I know we're running out of time, but there's so many cool things that you can actually achieve, like writing pages of your book and doing a million things that only take 10 minutes. So when you say, I don't have the time, we always have 10 minutes. And that long list, it's like a page and a half in your book, is just brilliant. And I highly recommend that people read it because it can really motivate you to get going. I love that page of the 10 minute things. I think that everyone has a different list of 10 minute things. And so, you know, what I would encourage your listeners to do is like, before you get the book, the first thing you can do is to make your list. Think for the next three days over what you can accomplish in 10 minutes. Because when you have that list in your mind, what will happen is you'll find yourself with 10 minutes. And suddenly you'll, you'll rather than opening your phone, and staring at social media or opening up YouTube and watching a video, you'll say, you know what? In 10 minutes, I can practice the piano for 10 minutes. And if I did that actually every single day at the end of the year, I would actually be able to play the piano in a rudimentary but effective way. So true. Uh, or I can do four push-ups right now. Or I could walk around my house four times and that will increase my all of those things in 10 minutes that we discount. We throw away our 10 minutes and we have to stop doing that. What is bliss for Matthew Dix? Uh, well, it's probably a place called Winding Trails, which is a lake club we belong to. Um, sitting on the beach, watching my son play in the sand, watching my daughter attempt to make 900 <laughs> new friends while she's splashing in the water and having my wife sitting next to me. Wow. Boy, do you ever get it. Yeah. I'm a lucky guy. You really do. What is the best way for people to contact you and connect with you on social media? Oh, well, they can find me at MatthewDix.com and um, Instagram and Twitter are all Matthew Dix and Facebook are Matthew Dix. You can just, if you look for me wherever Matthew Dix is, you will find me. So um, MatthewDix.com, though, is a good place to start. I have to tell you, you surprised me. I really, really enjoyed this. Not that I didn't think I was going to enjoy it, but you really surprised me and this book is great, and you are a great person, too, and I want to thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Thank you so much. I'm going to write that compliment down when this interview is over. Thank you, Matthew. We're going to go on a short commercial break, more with Finding Your Bliss and our singer and guitarist when we come back. Back in a moment. Finding Your Bliss is brought to you by CREATE, Canada's leading fertility centre for over 25 years. CREATE is here for anyone struggling with infertility or in need of assisted reproductive technology to have children. CREATE is about cutting-edge science from highly skilled doctors. In unprecedented times like these, CREATE is about ensuring the safety of all patients and staff. CREATE has made important changes to protect you by ensuring social distancing, wearing masks, as well as screening before entering. So what about the bundle of joy that you've been hoping would come into your family? CREATE Fertility Center is here for you. Visit createivf.com to keep up with the latest changes and learn about CREATE Fertility Center's comprehensive care for every fertility journey. Keep safe and healthy during these challenging days, remembering that life is about moments that we create together.
We are back, and this is Finding Your Bliss on Zoomer Radio, AM 740, FM 96.7. And we're joined now by a very talented singer and guitarist, and his name is Ben Kettner. He has a gorgeous voice, and he's going to sing us out of the show today. But first, let me tell you a little bit more about Ben. He is, as mentioned, a guitarist and singer based in Toronto, Ontario, and he's really been involved in musical ventures for nearly his entire life. He started singing at the age of three and playing guitar a few years later, and he's since performed in countless musical theatre productions, charity events, choirs, and talent shows. Ben is also a self-taught music producer who got his foot in the door of the production world in the mid-2020s by creating sound like covers of modern songs completely from scratch. He's very passionate about music and has spent much of his free time over the past few months creating video covers of popular songs for social media. He also teaches guitar lessons and works on original projects. Ben Kettner, welcome to Finding Your Bliss. Great to have you here. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad to see you here today, Ben, because I remember you singing and playing your guitar at a charity gig a number of years ago. I believe it was at a golf tournament for a very important charity. And I thought this guy is fantastic. And I've heard about you throughout the years. And I'm so glad to see that you're really pursuing your music these days. Can you tell us what you love about music and singing? Yeah, I think music has just been something that's uh, been a part of my life forever. And I think it's really like intrinsic. What I love about music especially is the way it makes me feel. I really feel like it evokes emotion in you. And when I'm singing, it's just, it's incredibly freeing Mm -hmm. and liberating. And it's just, it's something I really enjoy doing and I have a, a, a genuine passion for. And so beyond that, I mean, I can't really explain why it resonates with me so much, but I just, you know, I absolutely love it. Well, you're just fantastic at it. And I think that it resonates also because I think audiences really enjoy watching, listening to you as well. And can I ask you how your relationship with music these days has changed and really how the pandemic helped you start creating music again? For sure. Yeah. I mean, music was always something that was with me, but it wasn't something that I was necessarily pursuing actively. And at the start of the pandemic, I just had this spur of the moment idea to try to recreate a harmony in a song that I really liked. And as I started doing that, I decided that, you know, maybe I'll just try to recreate the entire song and that'll be a cool little project, a little hobby. And as I started doing that, I kind of discovered the whole world of music production. And from that point was led on a a difficult, (laughs) but very inspiring journey of this new world. And uh, yeah, the rest is history. I've been, creating songs and writing projects and still using these production skills. And I feel like over the last year and a half, two years, I'm now more actively engaging in music and actually, you know, doing something with it as opposed to kind of what I was doing before, which, you know, wasn't really pursuing uh, music that much. It's interesting. You didn't go to school for this. You were self-taught. So I'm just wondering for any listeners out there who might have an interest in this, how do you go about something? It seems kind of daunting and you've made it kind of simple. Yeah, no, it was definitely more difficult than I thought it was going to be. Um, I think the first and most important thing is that you have to have a real passion for it. If you really enjoy it, you'll find a way to get good at it. 
And beyond that, you know, just utilize the resources that you have available. YouTube is an amazing resource. And just practice, practice, practice and keep at it. And when things get tough, push through and you'll find a way to develop your skills. What are some of the covers that you've been putting out lately? So lately I've been doing video covers uh, just with my guitar and I'm just kind of randomly picking songs that I enjoy. So I've done... um, a bunch of John Mayer songs, as I'll be uh, playing today. I'm a huge John Mayer fan. He's been one of my biggest guitar inspirations for sure. Uh, Frank Ocean. I did a Leon Bridges song, a One Direction song, kind of, you know, a whole variety of things. That's so cool. Well, as you just mentioned today, you're doing a cover of In Your Atmosphere by John Mayer. Without further ado, here is Ben Kettner doing a cover of In Your Atmosphere. Let's have a listen. Due to international copyright law, podcasts are unable to include music. Music can only be played on the live radio broadcast. Finding Your Bliss airs every Saturday at 1 p.m. If you'd like to hear this artist's music, you can find the link to our Finding Your Bliss SoundCloud in the episode description. Oh, my God. (laughs) That was so, so beautiful. Ben, I I love the tone of your voice. I love that arrangement. I love everything about it. That was great. You got to send this to John Mayer. I know, right? (laughs) I'm serious. That's really gorgeous stuff. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. What I also love about you, Ben, is that you're not only an incredible singer, but you're also an amazing guitar player. And you even teach guitar, sharing your incredible talent. Yes. Can you tell us more about that? Um, yeah, I mean, I've been playing guitar for a really long time. And for me, it was it was just something that, you know, was pretty seamless. I just want to kind of pass on my passion to other people and help them along their journey. Because I you know I know what it was like for me when I was learning. And so, yeah, it's been something that I really enjoy doing. And it doesn't really feel like uh, work. <laughs> so anyone out there who's looking for a guitar teacher for maybe a child or grandchild or for yourself, I think Ben is pretty amazing. I think he really gets it. But you are an artist. There's no question. You are a singer. You are a musician. You know, you're really a creative being. Mm-hmm. So I'm just wondering what your ultimate dream is in terms of being a singer and a musician in this industry. Yeah, I mean, I would love to do something in the industry. And I hope in the very near future to start releasing some original projects that I've been working on and continue honing in on my production skills and just kind of seeing where it takes me. And if I end up landing a position somewhere in that field, amazing. If not, I'm going to continue doing this uh, because I really love it. That's great. Well, we love listening to you. And I think I might know the answer to this next question, but what is bliss for Ben Kettner? Ooh, that's a good question. Bliss. Bliss for me is just hmm, living in the moment, enjoying life, doing what you're passionate about, not sweating the small things and uh, looking forward to the future. That's awesome. Well, I think those are all pretty amazing things. (laughs) What is the best way for people to contact you, Ben, and connect with you on social media? For social media, you can reach out to me on uh, Instagram. And I also just started a TikTok. Both are Ben Kettner. Kettner is K-E-T-T-N-E-R. And uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. And also on YouTube as well, Ben Kettner, that's K-E-T-T-N-E-R. And what you can see for those of you who are just listening is Ben is a very handsome guy. So along with that gorgeous voice is a very gorgeous face. I want to thank you so much, Ben Kettner, for being on the show today. It was great having you here. Thank you so much. Really enjoyed it. 
Each week we spotlight a singer, songwriter, or musician on the show. If you're a singer, please write to us at music at findingyourbliss.com. And if you're an author, artist, yoga, meditation, or mindfulness expert, or really anyone who has found and is following their bliss, we would love to hear from you also. What did you love about today's show? Are there any guests or topics you would like us to feature on Finding Your Bliss? Write to us at fyb at findingyourbliss.com. I'm also a life coach. If I can help you in any way, let me know. You can reach out to me at findingyourbliss.com slash coaching. And of course, you can always search us up at The Bliss Minute on Instagram and Facebook. I would like to thank our wonderful guests for being on the show today. Thank you to Matthew Dix and to our singer, Ben Kettner. Also, thank you to Meg Ruffman, Siobhan Kiley, Lauren Kaminsky, producer, audio engineer, Nayara Amani, associate editor and video editor, Sierra Brown Rodriguez, audio producer, Faz Kazi, and everyone here at Zoomer. And of course, a big thank you to our sponsor, the Create Fertility Center. For everyone here, I'm Judy Liebrach, reminding you all to take one step closer to finding your bliss. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.